Isaiah 7. We just sang a great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, and I assume all of you know the wonderful story about that. Do you know the wonderful story about the man that wrote the music to that, Philip Bliss, who wrote a number of great hymns. It's kind of the reverse of um, Horatio Spafford, the author of the great hymn. As I understand it, um, uh, Philip Bliss and his wife were on a train, and there's a big train wreck and a fire, and he was able to escape, but he went back in to rescue his wife, and he perished there. He gave his wife trying to save his wife. I forgot about what happened to the wife, but that fits in with this morning's message. He was willing to die for his wife. So should husbands today. Okay, Isaiah 7, as we continue our chapter-by-chapter chapter study of Isaiah's prophecy and occasionally point out certain verses in particular in one or two tonight. The Old Testament contains a number of messianic prophecies, prophecies about the coming Messiah that are fulfilled in Jesus. Oh, ten years or so ago, I taught a series on Sunday night on these messianic prophecies. And we find a number of the clearest ones in the gospel according to Isaiah. And tonight, we look at the one that is crystal clear about the virgin birth of Jesus. Now, I say it's clear, but we'll see how some people don't think it's so clear. But we want to do an overview of the chapter to get the context, and then we'll concentrate in the middle of this on verse 14. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7. Notice the historical markers. came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramallah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. These historical markers with these individuals tells us that it's not a myth. The Bible doesn't contain myths. It has parables, but that's not a myth. It's just like in the New Testament, uh, Luke 2.1 and 3.1 give historical markers. It was in the, uh, so many years of the reign of this governor and the king and so forth. And uh, tells us the Bible isn't mythological, it's very historical. So looking at biblical chronology, this was approximately 735 B.C. Now it mentions the son of Uzziah, previous chapter Uzziah had died. And now the context is Syria to the north is, uh, is threatening to invade. They've been at war before, now they're going to... Does that sound like today's news? There's rumors that Syria is going to side with Hezbollah and come in through Lebanon because some of us old enough to remember the 1967 Six-Day War, the 73 Yom Kippur War, when, very, when it started with one nation and then a whole bunch of others ganged up on Israel and God protected them. So that's what's happening here. Syria is threatening to invade. And it mentions King Ahaz, the bad king of Judah, down south. And then Pekah, the bad king up north. Because after the split of the country, northern Israel, sometimes just abbreviated as Israel, never had a good king again. But down south they occasionally did, like Uzziah and later Hezekiah and Josiah. But yet, they're always in rivalry, north and south, and then the other nations, and the nations fighting against each other, and then fighting against Israel, 
It's like thieves fighting over the loot. And uh, so this king wants to side with Syria, but he had shifted sides. Uh, just like um, about three quarters of the way through uh, World War II, Italy switched sides. Did you know that? They first sided with um, Germany because Mussolini liked Hitler and they got along. Well, they were kind of like thieves. They didn't particularly like each other, but they sided together and they respected each other. And then when the tide was turning, they overthrew Il Duce, Mussolini, and they said, well, let's, side, let's go over to the winning side. And uh, Winston Churchill had a very clever witticism. He said, there was a, I told him, the Italians are now siding with us. And he said, well, I guess that's poetic justice. They side with the Germans, and now they're going to side with us. They lost in the first war. Who knows what's going to happen in the second? He didn't think too much of the Italians, because they really didn't help the Allies too much. But here we see similar things. People changing sides, and then the next generation will fight against one that used to be their ally. Quickly, um, verses 3 to 10 has God telling Isaiah to tell the Jewish leaders, don't fear, you're still my people, and you're not ideal, but I will vindicate you, I'll protect you. Just like I think the promise today, God will protect the people of Israel. He has a glorious future for them one day. And then there's another specific time marker in verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is reason within 65 years, Ephraim, that's the northern tribe of Israel, will be broken, so it will not be a people. The Bible doesn't often give future time markers for the prophecies. There was one in the book of Daniel. You remember? There'll be 70 weeks of years, that's 7 times 70, and one last one in particular, and they said this is leading up to the coming of Messiah. But he doesn't give time markers for future prophecies about the second coming of Jesus. Ignore the prophecy experts that think that they can find it somewhere in the Bible. Uh, don't they know Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, it has not been revealed. We had a self-appointed prophecy expert show up at our theology table talk years ago and he says I know when it's going to happen I know who the antichrist is and we said the Bible says no man knows he says well I know therefore it must mean something else well it did not come to pass when he thought uh, it would happen and by the way he thought that the antichrist was Henry Kissinger who just turned 100 and is still not the antichrist uh, look at also an interesting promise in verse 9, the last part of it. If you will not believe, you will not be established. Now you can turn that around. If you do believe God's promises, you will be established. Established means a good foundation. Remember in Matthew 7, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Build on my words like a rock and you will be protected. That's a good rocky foundation. Takes us to verses 11 to uh, 13, 11, God through Isaiah says to Ahaz, remember he's not a good king, ask for a sign as proof that God's going to protect. And so in verse 12, he wouldn't. He's kind of pretending, I don't need a sign, but you read it in context. It's not like a good thing. God had said, ask for a sign, and he said, I'm not going to ask for a sign. So that showed he didn't have faith. And when God did give a sign, he, he really didn't believe it. And then verse 12, uh, verse 13, he said, Hear now, O house of David, that's 
the tribe of David down, uh, the clan of David down in Judah. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Don't tempt God. Don't weary him. The places in the Old Testament where God kind of, what will it take for you people to finally believe me? Do you find anything like that with Jesus? Yes. Now this wasn't sinful, impatient, but remember the apostles kept misunderstanding, doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, and on more than one occasion Jesus said, how long do I have to be with you? How simple do I have to make it to you? I was reading my devotions that several times in the Gospels he told them explicitly, he's going to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed, crucified, and raised from the dead, and it says it went right by them. What does he mean? How can he be the Messiah and die? What, is, what does he mean? It was so simple, but they didn't get it. We share the gospel with people. They still don't get it. It's frustrating. Now, that's what precedes the great promise of the sign in verse 14. Remember the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this is the heart of tonight's message, and we'll get back to the rest of the chapter in a little while. This is the great sign. A virgin will miraculously conceive and have a child. There have been whole books written, not just on the value of the virgin birth, but of this prophecy itself. I read one by um, Ed Heinsen this last week, uh, exegeting this and showing what it really means and how people get it wrong. Notice it says God himself will do this. In other words, it's not chance. Of course, God fulfills his own prophecies through providence or even miraculous intervention. And so it's, it's a miraculous sign because if it's not a miracle, it wouldn't be a sign. Now, having done some research on this and having preached a number of times on the virgin birth, um, I found that there are three major interpretations of what is being promised and how it was fulfilled. Let's start with the bad one and work to the good one. Number one, the view of most liberals, not all, but most, would say, this, this is confusing. Um, this has nothing to do with the virgin birth of Jesus because he was not born of a virgin because this is something that happened in Isaiah's time. So they say it's non-miraculous. You say, but it says a virgin's going to conceive. And they'll say, well, she had been a virgin, got married, now she's conceiving, so what's unusual about that? And then another interpretation, if you just look over to the very next chapter, um, it, it mentions in verse 2, um, God says, I will make for myself faithful witnesses and so forth. And then Isaiah says, then I went to the prophetess and she conceived. And they said, well, that's a fulfillment. No, because we find here and over in Chronicles, they had already had a child. So this is the second child. And uh, so if she had had a child, she was not a virgin anymore. And so they, they misunderstand. This is not the fulfillment of what back in chapter 7, verse 14. By the way, notice something in chapter 8. We'll just briefly skim over that uh, next week. Verse 1, uh, right on it, the, man's, uh, the name of the baby, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Kind of rolls off your tongue. Did you know that's the longest name in the Bible? A little bit of trivia. There's a lot of names with only 
two letters, but this is the longest one. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay, back to the wrong interpretation. They'll say it's not a miracle because Isaiah is the father. And maybe she had been a virgin before she got married. So they say there's no miracle. And you say, well, what about Matthew that says it's a miracle? They say, well, Matthew just got it wrong. Or it says, that, well, there's some similarity between Isaiah and his wife and Mary and Joseph. But uh, they think that it's, uh, they take that interpretation. The second uh, one is popular with some liberals and with some evangelicals. Sort of a compromise, what's called the double fulfillment theory. They will point to various other prophecies in the Old Testament saying that a certain prophecy is fulfilled in the immediate future and a greater fulfillment much further in the future. So they'll say, yes, this was fulfilled with Isaiah and his wife, but it, the higher fulfillment has to do with Mary giving birth to Jesus. So they say it's a double fulfillment. <coughs> and they would say, well, Isaiah's wife had been a virgin, but now, and so forth. So they side with the non-miraculous view, but they don't deny the virgin birth <coughs> of Jesus. And so they say that it was a miracle with Jesus, but not with Isaiah. You can see how that's a compromise. <coughs> Excuse me, got a bit of a cough tonight. The third view is the one that by far most evangelicals hold. And for 2,000 years, Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, Protestant Reformers, Puritans, all the great Christians held it. And it's the miraculous view of the prophecy that maybe something in the immediate future was a type of that, but they say that's not really in view here and it's not really what chapter 8 is talking about. They say it's fulfilled in Jesus with the Virgin Mary, the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a miracle, therefore it was a sign. So the sign that's given isn't fulfilled immediately in the time of Ahaz, but in the far future. And we find other examples, such as later in Isaiah 53. Um, we'll get to that, but I'll give you a little hint in advance. Isaiah 53 is talking about the death of the Messiah as if it had already happened. It says, he was despised. He was this. It wouldn't happen for another 600 years. It's what's called the prophetic proleptic. It's so certain it's going to happen, it's spoken about as if it's already happened, like in uh, Romans 8. Them he justified, he also glorified. Well, we've been justified, haven't been glorified yet, but it's certain, therefore it's spoken about in the past tense. So they would say, it's like that here in verse 14. Uh, the Lord will give you a sign, the virgin shall conceive, that's in the future, call his name Emmanuel, but it's certain it's going to happen. And it happened in the life of Jesus. It was a miracle. Okay, let's go into a little bit more in-depth Bible study. Why do liberals deny that this is predicting the miraculous virgin conception and birth of Jesus? They say it has to do with the Hebrew word virgin here. Now, there are two words in Hebrew that could be translated as virgin or young woman. The first one is used here. Alma, which means a young woman not a little girl, but a young woman of marriageable age that is still a virgin. 
She may be married, but probably not, because then she wouldn't be a virgin, but she's of marriageable age. The other word is betula, which means a young woman, but doesn't really have virginity in mind, but she is of marriageable age. Isaiah, under the inspiration of God, used the first word, not the other, but the liberals kind of reverse it and say, no, um, she was of marriageable age, and uh, not necessarily a virgin, but we'd say, no, she was. The, uh, there are two or three things in this argument. You look at different uses here and outside the Bible, and you see how those two words are not exact synonyms. There are linguistic nuances between them, and God inspired Isaiah to use the higher of the two. By the way, you may or may not know that some of the uh, liberal translations of the Bible translate this as young woman. There was a big furor back, was in 1946, when the liberals produced the Revised Standard Version and they put in young woman. And did you know there were even some fundamentalists that took the RSV Bible and burned it saying this is, this is uh, blasphemous. But there, another confirming fact, like a, in a law court that says, Your Honor, this is absolute proof that the virgin birth of Jesus is predicted here because of the New Testament. New Testament gives the inspired interpretation of this in Matthew chapter 1, quotes it. And of course, it's written in Greek, and the word there is parthenos, which nobody disputes its real meaning. It's used in secular Greek. Down in Egypt, the Jews that knew Greek there, there is no dispute about it. And that's where Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, it's the Parthenos will conceive. And so it's open and shut, and it's in the context of describing what happened. If it was not a miraculous conception, that would not be a sign. Women give birth all the time. That was not going to be a special sign. The special sign is that it was a miraculous conception and birth. So the question is, why do liberals deny this? By the way, it's not just liberal pseudo-Christian pseudo-scholars. Micah, I do not have any respect for them. The Bible calls them false prophets. So I say, they're, oh, they're very scholarly, but they're pseudo-scholarly. They misuse the great brains God has given them. Why then do they deny the virgin birth? Why do they read back into this prophecy and deny what it's predicting and reject Matthew's interpretation. It's because of two things. They deny miracles. Now, not all liberals deny miracles. Karl Barth was a modified liberal, and he did believe both in the virgin birth and in miracles. But he was a moderate liberal, but other ones say there are no miracles. God would be breaking his own laws to perform a miracle. And they'll even laugh at the idea of the virgin birth. I hate to say it, but they do that. Um, I don't know if this has ever come up in your evangelism, but when I did open-air evangelism, we would even hint at the virgin birth, like at around Christmas, they'd laugh and say, don't you know how babies are made? You can't have this. they laugh at the idea. But then I would quote the great Francis Schaeffer and say, if God is there, miracles are possible. God can do miracles, so don't laugh at this. It's a holy subject. Why then do these liberals deny miracles? It's because they're not true Christians. They don't believe in regeneration being a miracle. They don't really believe in the resurrection because they give it other interpretations. 
if they had even one grain of integrity, they would say, I'm not a Christian, I'm just an atheist or a skeptic. And they actually are siding with the atheists and the agnostics and others. Now, non-Christian Jews deny the uh, virgin birth of Jesus, but if they're orthodox, they don't deny miracles. You have to kind of get the lay of the land on who believes in what, but Orthodox Jews would say, of course we believe that the Almighty, blessed be, he can do miracles. He parted the Red Sea and called down fire from uh, heaven and so forth. But they don't believe that this is a prophecy of the Messiah. But this does get some of them to thinking, especially when you tie it in with Matthew 1, very Jewish gospel. They'll say, you ask them, well, what is being predicted here? And if they say, well, it's Isaiah, and say, no, 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 it's not Isaiah and his wife. It can't be. And so they just say, well, who knows? And they want to dodge the question. But again, the liberals deny the virgin birth because they deny miracles because they're not true Christians. And sometimes they'll say, well, yes, Matthew did think mistakenly that this predicted the virgin birth, but we know better that Jesus was not uh, conceived or born of a virgin because it doesn't happen. And then some of them even powder it up and try to sound scholarly by saying, well, Matthew did teach the virgin birth, but he got it wrong. And, so, and, then they'll, and even some others will press us and say, well, you can't build an important doctrine on just one verse. I want to roll up my sleeves and go after them with both fists and say, wait a second. Second, uh, Second Timothy 3.16 does say you can teach a doctrine based upon one verse. All scripture is inspired and is profitable for doctrine. And also the virgin birth of Jesus is a very important doctrine. Secondly, they'll say on only one verse, Matthew 1 is not the only verse. Luke 1 and Luke 2, you can also derive it from Galatians 4, 4 and 5. And also, if you look closely, the very first messianic prophecy in the Bible. Would anybody know where that is? Shout it out. Okay, Sally, you know it. <laughs> He'll come and crush the devil, said Genesis 3.15. And notice it says the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. Wait a second takes two seeds. It's implying the mother of the Messiah that crushes the head of the devil uh, will have a miraculous conception. If you look closely, you'll see it there, but it's kind of vague like some other Old Testament prophecies. So I rest my case that this does predict the virgin birth of Jesus and his conception. To be precise, it was a miraculous conception, not a miraculous birth. Let me also correct something. Some people hear the phrase, the Immaculate Conception. That phrase refers, in Roman Catholic theology, to the conception of Mary, not by Mary. You say, what? You have to back up. They over-exalt Mary. Of course, she's our sister in Christ. But they basically make her almost a mother goddess by saying, she was a virgin, but she never had relations before or after the conception of Jesus. She had no sin. She did not inherit sin. Therefore, she was conceived in the, mother, in the womb of her mother, Anna. And that's what the Immaculate Conception is. Otherwise, she would have passed it on to Jesus. No, 
Original sin is passed on from the father, not the mother. Mary was a sinner. She said Jesus, uh, God was her savior. And so there's no immaculate conception. Question, why is the virgin birth of Jesus so important? Why is it worth fighting for? For two reasons. Number one, it protects the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not inherit original sin. He would have if Joseph had been his father. But Matthew and Luke almost go out of the way to say Joseph was just an onlooker. He was not the father. Who was the father? Both those gospels very clearly say it is God. Jesus was son of God in the Trinity. Now he's son of God by way of the virgin birth in order to protect his sinless humanity. But secondly, his deity. If Joseph was his father, he would have just been another human being. Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But he did not have a human father. He had a divine father. And so in this conception, what we call the incarnation, he was sinless man and he was also God. It's also fitting that the Messiah would have both a miraculous birth and a miraculous death. Think about that, and a miraculous resurrection. Now, none of these prophecies or what's described in um, Matthew and Luke tell us the specific means, nor should we speculate. Secret things belong to the Lord our God, and we're on holy ground. It would not be fitting, it would not be modest to go into the details um, all we know is that, the, is that the angel said to her, it would be a miracle with God. All things are possible to be done by means of the Holy Spirit. Next, the liberals say, well, maybe it was miraculous, but it wasn't unique. Weren't there miraculous conceptions for Sarah, Manoah's wife, Elizabeth, and Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1? And they say those were miraculous conceptions and they would be like that with Jesus. It wasn't born of a virgin because these women weren't virgins. Wait, stop, time out. In each of those accounts, the miracle not was just with the mother, but with the father that was not able to procreate. Those husbands were the fathers, but not with Jesus. Joseph was not his father. So you see, they were both miracles, but Jesus was unique. There have been no other virginal conceptions in the history of mankind because there are no other incarnations. Incarnation means God took on a human body, a human soul, in the person of the Lord Jesus, who is already divine. And put it like this, Jesus had a human mother and a divine father. Matt, he did not have a divine mother and a human father. I like how Steve Lawson puts it. He was as old as his father and older than his mother. Old as his father, who was God, and older than his mother. Think what it was like, Mary raising Jesus, thinking, he's not only my son, he is my creator, because he's God. It's like when Jesus asked the Pharisees, um, uh, who, who is this son of David? Well, David calls him Lord. Well, how is he Lord if he's his son? They couldn't answer it. We know the answer. He was son of David by way of humanity, but he was David's Lord by way of deity. So this is a profound subject. I've sometimes preached or done Bible studies on this leading up to Christmas, which is coming in a couple of weeks. It was effect 
actuated by the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit would do that special miracle for Mary. And he did not do it through Joseph. That's very important to realize. In fact, years ago when I said, I'm going to read a lot on this great subject, I said, how do you summarize the virgin birth with, without a long, detailed explanation? So I looked it up in a definitive source, the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, and it nails it. He says that the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived by the Virgin Mary without the help of a human father, period, or full stop. That's it. A virgin, miracle, without a human father. And that's the means that God chose to send his son into the world. He didn't show up like Adam in the garden. He didn't just pop into the world as a full-grown adult. He started as the is in very tiny embryo and began to grow. That's part of his uh, humbling. It was also not by means of what's called biological parthenogenesis. Anybody have heard that term? Any biology majors? Parthenogenesis comes from two Greek words. Parthenos, which we've said is a Greek word for virgin. Genesis, to generate something. Um, or in biology, they would say there's sexual reproduction and asexual. Certain plants, they don't mate, they just grow. And seeds go into the wind and so forth. And so it's been speculated, it, like in certain animals, this could happen, but never in humans. But some say, well, why not as sort of a blip that it could have happened with Mary without Joseph? But then that was answered by some Christian biologists that said, Theoretically, it could happen in plants and in certain animals, but in those cases with animals, it can only happen that the mother produces a girl. It has to do with the split of the chromosomes and all, but could not happen with a boy. But Jesus was a boy, so it's not parthenogenesis. By the way, parthenogenesis is still just a theory, and it would not be natural. It would be natural, not supernatural. Next, boy, this is sorted. Not liberals, but Mormons and Muslims promote the idea that um, Mary conceived by the Father, God the Father, having intimacy with Mary. That's not what the Bible says, but did you know that's what Mormonism teaches? That God the Father is an exalted human that came down and you can fill in the blanks. Absolutely not. And Muslims think that's what we're teaching. If you witness to a Muslim... Uh, say, no, no, Joseph was not the father, nor anybody else is only God. And they'll say, oh, no, Allah has no son. No, but the Bible says he does. By the way, another interpretation was done by a famous Scottish New Testament scholar named William Barclay that said, um, well, it wasn't virgin conception or birth, uh, but it was the incarnation. God, through Joseph, did this miracle. Absolutely not. The Bible doesn't teach that. Nor did it require, as the Catholic Church said, that she would remain a virgin for the rest of her life. The Bible doesn't teach that. Okay, back to the prophecy. It says, We'll bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the literal. Now look at that name, Emmanuel, or in Spanish, Manuel. Uh, E-L stands for Elohim, God, and Emmanuel means with us, God with us. Matthew quotes that and gives the inspired interpretation. It means God is with us, and he's saying this baby is God 
who is with us. And it also says he will have another name by which he is more commonly known, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. And look at that name, Yeshua. It means Jehovah saves. And very interesting, that name incorporates the name Yahweh or Jehovah. The other one, Elohim, he's both. This is Matthew's way of saying this baby is definitely God. That's one of my hundred proofs in the book, Hundred Proofs, Jesus is God. Okay, very quickly, uh, verses 15 and 16, the aftermath of this, it says curds and honey. Curds is kind of like, uh, some translate this as butter. It's like cottage cheese. It's a dairy product that has a little solidity to it, like honey. Baby food, something very soft. Curds and honey, this baby will eat till he knows to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, and so forth. I've referred to this in my book on uh, Calvinism, uh, on the chapter on what happens to dying infants. Uh, without elaborating, this is one of the proofs that there is an age of reason. And if a baby dies before that, they're considered elect, they're covered by the blood of Christ, they are saved, a child reaches an age of reason where they can know the difference between good and evil. Sometimes parents say, honey, I just noticed our child consciously is doing wrong, but before that was just unconscious. And so this would be one of the verses. There are many others in the Bible that talk about this age of reason or consciousness, and it happens sometime in young infancy. And it can be sliding scale. It can happen earlier or later with some children. And then it mentions uh, this, uh, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So he's kind of intertwining these prophecies. And so he's segueing into the rest of the chapter, which we'll cover very briefly now. Verses 17 and 20, back to the immediate future in Isaiah's time in the context, the threat of the Assyrians and Assyrians and others coming in and God says, no, I'm going to protect them. And he now mentions not Syria, but Assyria. Those are not the same. Sometimes they sound the same when you listen to someone from the Middle East. Have you ever heard our wise man from the Middle East often put an A at the beginning of a word that starts with S? Uh, he'll sometimes say, here in the United States of America. That's how they often would pronounce it in the Middle East. But in the Bible, Syria and Assyria were totally different countries. Syria, without the A, was due north of Israel with Lebanon in between. Assyria was to the northeast, just north of Babylon. And so here they're afraid of Syria, and God says, don't worry, I'm going to protect you from the Syrians. I'm not going to protect you from the Assyrians. They did move into the north, conquer the northern Israel, but God stopped them from conquering southern Israel. And then later God let someone else conquer south Israel. The Babylonians who had conquered Assyria. So that's the historical context. And that's being predicted here. And it came to pass. Lastly, verses 21 to 25. Uh, I don't want to call it a mixed prophecy. But you'd have to look at it closely. First, he predicts there would be great prosperity. I'm going to protect you. They're not going to come in and loot you. You're going to prosper. But then secondly, that's going to be followed by a time of devastation. During the time of prosperity, he's giving them time to repent. They didn't take it. 
It's kind of like Joseph's dreams back in Egypt. You remember the dreams of the stalks of wheat and so forth? He goes to Pharaoh and says, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of want. Here it's like, I'm going to give you a reprieve temporarily, and then look out the time of devastation. Two applications of that is that God gives sinners sometimes great blessings in a time to repent. But if they don't use it properly, God says, then you're adding to your punishment. And I'm going to punish you and then ultimately punish you uh, in hell. Second application is, God sometimes showers blessings upon a people, not necessarily his own people like Israel, but America, United Kingdom, Germany, other ones. Great prosperity in history. But if they don't use that to show gratitude to God as an opportunity to repent, God says, enough. It's going to come back on your head worse than before. America is prospering now. Now. But God could turn it all around and we could face major devastation. Nuclear holocaust coming in from the Muslims, from, from Russia or whatever. We could end up worse than a third world country. All you got to do is learn from history. You know the old saying, George Santayana, the Spanish philosopher, those that do not learn from the mistakes of history are condemned to repeat the mistakes of history. Just look at Germany. Very prosperous. Turned their back on God and turned to Hitler. Very prosperous in the 1930s. Oh, devastated in World War II. That could be America. Lord willing, next week we'll do a survey of chapters 8 and 9 and another great crystal clear prophecy of the birth of that Messiah. And so this is actually preparing us for the Christmas season in a few weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the miraculous sign of the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus, our Messiah. Thank you that you have given us the enlightenment to believe it. We pray for those that don't believe it, so that they would believe in Jesus and wake up and see the wonder and the truth of this great sign about the birth of Jesus. Help us to believe in him, especially in the next few weeks, from Thanksgiving to Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.